0: all right, let's come back. I heard some laughing, so you probably have some silly ones on your list like I do. But uh, what if we were to just get serious this morning? I mean, what if I were to ask you to name two hopes, like two deep goals that you really have for yourself to accomplish in the next five years, that if you did them, they would be game changers? I mean, what if there were uh, two worthy aspirations for you that would be worth fighting for? It's not saying it would be easy, but you know it would be worth it deep down in your soul. What are two resolutions that you might make before God that in his grace, if he would grant them, you know it would bring all kinds of fulfillment to you and the people around you? I know uh, Eric just told you to put away your phone, but I want you to take it out for a second um, you can do this on the paper uh, in front of you if you want to, too. But in your phone, open up your email app. And uh, i like for you to address an email to yourself in your email app. Do you know your email address? Okay. <laughs> Type it in there. And then on the subject line, write two hopes I have for the next five years. Subject line, two hopes I have for the next five years. And I know this is spur of the moment, but I just you want you to kind of... Off the cuff, enter those in. Um, don't you're not making a commitment here, okay? Don't worry about wordsmithing uh, these things you're typing in. Um, they can be a little bit selfish. Make make them about you, not about other people. What your hopes are for other people. Start typing them in. This is going to be private. Only you will ever see it. And maybe Google and the National Security Agency. I don't know. They'll probably see it too. <laughs> uh, they can be spiritual, professional, family-oriented, something related to health. So maybe something you've been hoping for for a long time. I hope to run my own business. I hope to get married and start a family. I hope to get sober. I hope to start a nonprofit for uh, homeless teens. I'm hoping to place in the top 10 of an Iron Man. I want to earn $10 million and give away $3 million. I hope to beat cancer. I hope to be reconciled with my ex-wife. Just if you would, type some things in there and hit send to yourself or write it down on the paper in front of you. If you don't have anything this morning, maybe uh, God might lead you to two hopes as we talk together through his word. Your hopes, these secret resolutions, they are precious to your heavenly father because they flow out of who he uniquely designed you to be, and even if some of them have a little bit mixed motives, God wants to partner with you. Because this is the thing about men. God puts a vision in our hearts. And when we strive and work towards that, that creates this space for God to form us and shape us and to grow us. So let me ask you a couple of things about, uh, a couple of questions about what you thumbed into your phone just a second ago are those hopes able to be accomplished without God? If they are, they're too small. And secondly, are those two hopes you typed in, could God accomplish them without you? And if the answer is yes, then they're not truly your own. Sometimes God leads us and he carries us in this intricate dance of faith. But sometimes he asks us to lead and to do a lot of the work. James talks about this in James chapter 4. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go into this city and spend a year there and carry on business and make some money. Why, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Okay, this is making sense so far. James is saying, uh, James, by the way, is the brother of Jesus, the very hardcore brother of Jesus, who's often saying hardcore things. And when I read through his epistle, the book of James, I often find myself saying the word, ouch, okay? So he's saying here, hey, be real careful about when you're forecasting, (laughs) making plans, especially if you're boasting about what you're going to do. Because God's in control. So it's important, James says, to invite him along and shape things around his will. Because if you do that, you know, God has the power to make things happen. But then James is going to tack on this little zinger verse at the end of this passage, verse 17. He says, if anyone then knows the good thing they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. Ouch. I'm thinking, thanks a lot, James. I mean, just when I was able to go through the Bible and kind of catalog all the sins that I'm not supposed to do, you throw this one at me. If you ever know a good thing that you're, you should do and you stubbornly don't do it, that's a sin. So what does that mean? I mean, I guess I should probably be flossing every day, right? Right? Uh, I should probably let that guy merge in front of me on Mopac in his car. Um, I'm thinking maybe I should probably do something about climate change. I don't know. So James, are you telling me all these things are sins because I'm not doing anything about them? But I don't think that's what James is talking about. Because this is a passage of scripture about partnership with God. And the first part of the passage says, dream big and invite God along And then in this last part of the passage, it's the second half, he's saying, but God has good things for you to do today. James seems to be saying, yes, have hopes, and definitely have hopes for God's help, that if you dream something up in his will, he's going to come to your aid. But James says, hope is not a strategy. It's not enough to make a bucket list or scratch a couple goals down on a post-it note. He just said in chapter 2 of James, faith without works is dead, and so he's communicating is, God's going to give you assistance, but to partner with him, you've got to do a lot of the work. God gave you desires, but you're going to need to step into the grind. Ouch. Some really interesting research has come out the last 10 years about this very thing uh, in human performance research. Uh, maybe you read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Outliers. It uh, asks the question, how do people get good at things? You know, how do people accomplish their goals? And specifically, he does these case studies. You know, how did the Beatles uh, find the the realization of their hopes to be a great rock and roll band? And then how did Bill Gates become a master programmer? And Malcolm Gladwell finds in his research, hope is not a strategy. It's all about practice. He says it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become truly world-class at something, to accomplish your goals. Uh, Another book I like on the subject is called Mastery by George Leonard. And in that, he says, uh, our progress towards our goals sort of flows in what he calls the mastery curve. Um, uh, There's a picture up here. He says, you've got your skill or uh, uh, results towards your goal on one axis. You've got time down here. And we would all love it to look like this. You know, this arrow, this hockey stick pointing up and to the right. That when we set our mind to a goal, we just get more and more results over time. But that's not really what happens. I mean, often we kind of flatten out in our results. Sometimes we just quit altogether. So Leonard says, how do the people who thrive and are purposeful about their goals, what does their curve look like? And he calls this the mastery curve. In it, he says, Uh, When you set your mind to a goal, there's a lot of energy in the beginning, and there's an initial burst of energy in which you see results, but then you kind of flatten out on this plateau. And Leonard says, that's the time where you practice, or as James says, you do the good things today. You do the small basic dance moves over and over so that you get better and better, and then all of a sudden you see another burst of results, and the cycle repeats itself until you get better and better. So, you take care of business, you do the good things, and James says, God will do the rest. So, are you willing to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty uh, for the hope you want tomorrow? Those two goals that you thumbed into your phone, are you willing to labor towards them? Because if you are, God's going to do immeasurably more than you can hope or imagine, Ephesians chapter 3. But if you won't do the dance, if you won't get into the grit of practice, your hopes will just be wishes. So uh, I've been uh, a pastor in the first half of my career. Now I'm an executive coach. Uh, I've been helping people for a long time get some clarity on what their hopes and goals are and to create a strategy Around how to achieve them. And I've found over the years that hope is not a strategy. And the strategy for accomplishing your real life goals breaks down into seven steps. So I want to get real practical with you today with biblical wisdom and maybe a little bit of research. But first, I want to tell you a story about hopes and strategies from Scripture. Uh, this is from 2 Kings chapter 5. You can follow along in your Bible if you like, but honestly, I'd rather you just sat back in your chair and enjoyed this story. It's a story that I've loved since I was a little boy. And then I once heard it in college told by an old preacher from the hills of Tennessee uh, named Tommy, and I was inspired the way he told it. So I, I kind of like to retell it the way uh, I heard it, which is pretty true to Scripture. So here it goes. This is the story of Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was one of the most powerful men in the ancient Middle East. His people were called the Arameans, or we think of them today as the Syrians. And they had pioneered technological advances in the use of iron and weapons, and chariots and siege works. And so they became the most lethal fighting force on the entire planet. And Naaman was their great general, who no one can touch. If you would have seen Naaman's armor it would have been, you know, burnished to a bright shine and he would have had all these ribbons and medals all over it. This is a fearsome and intimidating man. He had it all, notoriety, unmatched brains and probably the biggest bank account of anyone who wasn't a king in that time. But Naaman had a problem that no amount of influence or money could ever fix because one morning he wakes up and he looks in the mirror and he sees this blemish on his forehead right there. And instantly he knows this is a death sentence because it's leprosy. It's the most dreaded uh, disease in all the Bible. We know today in modern medicine that leprosy attacks the central nervous system, but to those people back then, it was just manifested as people's uh, you know skin rotting away and limbs falling off. So leprosy was very scary, and uh, lepers were... Uh, had a kind of stigma attached to them so people thought they were highly contagious and they also thought there was some kind of moral problem that caused them to have leprosy so lepers were sent out into leper colonies and if you got leprosy your life was over never again would you know the touch of your kids or your spouse you couldn't do a job anymore um, it was a terrible disease and there was no known cure. So Naaman is desperate and he's willing to try anything. And he does. I mean, he's like praying to idols, the Syrian gods. He's like uh, doing leeches and, you know, chanting and superstition. He's watching 90s rom coms. He's scrubbing himself with a sham wow. You know, he's doing anything that he can think of. And Naaman asks around, for any other thoughts on what he could do. And uh, one of the servants in his household, a little Israelite girl said, hey, there's a God in my country who does great miracles. And so you should go see him. So Naaman packs up a goodly portion of his army and they get on their chariots and they ride uh, to Samaria to visit with the king of Israel. And the king of Israel sees him coming and sees what's going on with Naaman and saying, hey, it's uh, good to see you. you. You don't mind if I don't shake your hand, uh, but I, if you really want help with this leprosy thing, the king said, you need to go talk to Elisha the prophet who lives out in the wilderness. He can heal you. Now, if you don't know anything about Elisha, he has this reputation of being kind of an eccentric mystic. Uh, he had long, scraggly beard and uh, you know." hair tied back into a ponytail he wore leather and ate bugs he grew his own supply you know he's always talking about the man's got you down and drove around in a vw van listened to freedom rock so basically he was from kyle buda and uh and so naman says let's go let's go see him out in the wilderness." He gets directions that Naaman lives at the end of this long dirt road. So they take uh, his army out there to Elisha's house. And uh, you can hear the thunder of the hooves. And you can see the dust cloud coming as it arrives in uh, Elisha's front yard. But Elisha doesn't go out to meet them. And so uh, Naaman sends his captain. He says, go to the door and get, get get the prophet. The captain says, yes, sir goes up and knocks on Elisha's door, and uh, he, Elisha kind of cracks it open, and the captain says, hi, we're uh, from Naaman, the Syrian. Maybe you've heard of us. We've got this big sack of gold for you. We're willing to pay you handsomely if you'll just restore my master's health from leprosy. And uh, Elisha says, I don't want your money, man. Uh, just tell your master to go down to the Jordan River and to dip himself seven times in the water. And he'll be healed. And then Elisha slams the door. So the captain goes back to the chariots and says to the king, um, "He's not coming out." And Naaman's is furious. He's like, "Don't doesn't he know who I am? Oh, how dare the prophet not come talk to me? Well, what did he say?" And the captain says, well, well, sir, he said, if you want to be healed, you need to go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. And oh, my gosh, Naaman starts freaking out. I mean, he can't believe the nerve of this prophet uh, telling him to do something ridiculous like this. And he's stomping around. He's looking for someone to take his frustrations out. He's like an ancient Mesopotamian version of Will Smith at the Oscars. You know, he's like really frustrated. Um, and then, then his uh, captain says to him, sir. I mean, if the prophet would have told you, uh, you know, give him some money, or if he would have told you, go beat some scary army in battle, you would have done it, right? Naaman's like, yeah, I guess so. He's like, well, why don't you just do the river thing? Go down to the dirty Jordan River and dip yourself. The great general says, okay, let's do it. And so they do a big U-turn in their chariots, and it's uh, the the, uh, prophet's front yard, and they take the journey down to the Jordan River. And there Naaman walks down to the river's bank and he takes off that beautiful armor with all those medals and all those ribbons. And he strips off of his uh, fine you know, silk garments and he goes down in the water and he dips himself seven times and comes up a new man. That's the story of Naaman the leper. And uh, I think it's kind of a cool uh, story when you think about it. But uh, it really talks about this idea of you got to go do the work. And he did the work. And so I would like to just kind of slow things down, rewind to that last portion uh, of the story where this man had hopes and needed a strategy, and just play this back in slow motion. Okay? It's just the final scene. Tell me this. How many times was Naaman told to dip in the River Jordan? How many times did he dip in the River Jordan? And on which dip was he actually healed? Seven? A lot of people said seven. So seven was one sweet dip, wasn't it? As dips go, it was banging. I mean, if that seventh dip was uh, uploaded to YouTube, it would go viral. Sick man goes down to the water, comes up with flesh like a baby. Number seven is the dippiest dip of all. I like seven. It's a great dip, but I need to remind you before dip seven, there was dip six. Before dip six, there was dip five. Naman dipped seven times. Every dip was part of the process. Which one was most important? Some of you saying the first one. Some of you are saying all of them. Yeah, they're, they're all kind of important. You know, dips one through six were probably not that impressive. Think about it for a second. Let's, let's picture it. Dip one. You know, Naman goes down to the river. And maybe the river is kind of cold. You ever, gotten, you ever gotten into kind of a cold body of water before? You know, he steps in and his boys, you know, go running for the hills. <laughs> this is a men's conference. You know, we can be real. That's dip one. Dip two. He goes in, and he goes under the water, and he comes out, and there's like sticks and mud, and his leprosy, and he's like, gross, you know, I'm going to get infected, I can't handle this. That was dip two. And dip three, you know, maybe something dead floats by in the river. That'd be just like God, right? God's like, hey, angels, cue the floating cow now. <laughs> And uh, Naaman goes down, he comes up, he's like, oh, gross. You know, dip four, nothing happens. Dip five, nada. Dip six, he comes up out of the water, and he's starting to feel like a fool. Like that, that, that old prophet, he's having some fun at my expense here. He's probably laughing his granola butt off right now. And he's hesitant about dip seven. But then he's willing to do it, and he goes down into the water, and he comes out. And for the first time in months, he starts to feel tingling in his fingertips and his toes. And he looks at his body and patches of flesh are being restored. And he starts uh, hooping and hollering and splashing in the water. He's like doing the naked electric slide dance in the end zone. All all excited. Because Naaman, the most powerful man in the world at that time, is now splashing around in the water like a five-year-old at Schlitterbahn. Look, God can read that email that you sent yourself. And I suppose if he wanted to, he could take those two hopes or those goals you have for the next five years, and he could snap his fingers, he could flex his omnipotent muscles and make them happen, and he could make happen every hope that was ever in your life. But hope's not a strategy. Hope is not a relationship. Hope is not the dance that we do with God in which he makes us into men. You've got to do the work. You've got to take the dips. So for your goals, you have to journey through these seven dips, and I'm going to uh, talk through these. I'm I'm going to rush through them. These are seven dips you have to do in order to accomplish your hopes. Here we go. Dip one, define the goal. What do you really want? What do you really want? Uh, I like watching Jesus in the Gospels as he's traveling around, uh, and as he's speaking, he's often interrupted by people who have a need. And not all the time, but very many times, Jesus looks at them and says, what do you really want? What can I do for you? It's kind of an obvious question, and I'm surprised there aren't any sarcastic remarks back to Jesus like, "Uh, I'm kind of blind here, or... Uh, my friend set me down in this mat and lowered me through the ceiling, so you know, guess. Um, but, but really, what Jesus is doing there is he's trying to ignite in people uh, the desires that God's put in their hearts and get them to articulate them. And more importantly, I think Jesus asked the question because the thing we often say that we want, there's often something deeper that we really, really want. So the man who had a son who was possessed by a demon, yes, he, he wanted uh, to, that son to be healed so he wouldn't keep harming himself, but he also wanted help with his faith. One of the best phrases in all of scripture, I believe Jesus, but help me overcome my unbelief. Or the rich young ruler, yes, I mean, he had a theological question that he came to Jesus with, but he also knew deep down in his heart that money was his God and it wasn't fulfilling. Or the Syrophoenician woman who approaches Jesus on the road, asks for healing for her daughter. Yes, she was looking for healing for her daughter, but she also wanted to know God, do you really care about me? Because I'm a woman and I'm a non Jew and I'm a foreigner. See, there's often a question uh, beneath the questions, there's often a goal beneath the goal, which is, what do you really want? And uh, in my line of work, people are often coming to me uh, with should questions. They say, Ted, what should I do? Ted, what option should I I pick? I don't freaking know. I mean, I, I can't even answer basic questions for myself. I go to HB and I look at the checkout lines and I'm like, register four has two people in it and register six has one person, but it looks like she has a lot of coupons. I can't pick the fastest lane. I can't answer should questions for myself. So I've stopped answering should questions, but what I do with people who ask me them is I simply ask, what do you really want? And I ask it a bunch of ways until we finally dig into what's driving the person. Recently, a very successful woman uh, asked me, Ted, should I quit my VP job at a tech company here in Austin and start my own business? I said, what do you really want? She said, Well, the CEO is blocking my promotion, and, and I, I just got to get out of there if, if I'm going to advance. And I said to her, What do you really want? She's like, I want to be successful. I want to be the captain of my own ship. I don't want my destiny determined by other people's decisions. Then I said, What do you really want? And there was silence, there was a long pause and then it just flowed out. She said, I feel like other people are in control of my life and I can never do enough to make them happy. The only people I actually want to make happy are my daughter and my husband. I would love to just be able to pick my daughter up some afternoons from school. Uh, i like to be able to take a vacation with my family without constantly checking my email. I would like to be in a role in life in which I'm thriving as a person and I'm thriving as a professional. And I was like, Bingo. That'll be $1,000, please. (laughs) It's a fun job. Um, So you get get what I'm saying. Dip one is really defining the goal. Just not on the surface, what is it that I'm after, but underneath, what do I really want? Dip number two is agreed to the trade-offs. In Luke 9, Jesus is growing in popularity. He's attracting a lot of crowds, because why not? Jesus is a super fun guy, you know, he's telling these cute little parables. He's handing out free loaves and fishes. So people are into that. So Jesus just one day decides he's going to thin the herd a little bit. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to be willing to renounce your mother and father. <laughs> and then he says, oh, and you also need to be able to take a cross, which is a symbol of Roman execution, and put it on your shoulders and follow me. Awkward. <laughs> And people in the crowds are like checking their watches going, "Yeah, I, I, got, a, I got a thing, so Jesus, I'll catch you on the flippity-flip. And, and they, they start walking away. And then Jesus says one other thing there. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you've got enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. He's saying to you and me, Everything in life that's truly worth it is going to involve some trade-offs. It's, you can't do it all. Money, time, devotion—these are all scarce resources. And so, if when you're building your tower, Jesus says, if you're not really willing to count the costs at the upfront, then you're going to end up looking like Ted Beasley at the end of every Jenga game—you know, looking like a total idiot. So. If you're writing down a goal of I like to place uh, in a marathon, have you really thought about you know what that's going to cost you, what you're going to have to sacrifice, or the people around you who spend time with you, what they're going to have to sacrifice in terms of your training and all the hours that are poured into that? Are you willing to give up Round Rock Donuts? And then um, if you're going to, one of your goals is to get an MBA in the next two years. What are the trade-offs? Are you able to afford that financially? Are you going to maybe take a financial hit because not being able to work as much? Are you willing to give up weekends, you know, to go sit in MBA classes? I work with a guy here in town who's an entrepreneur and he has a technology that is a can't miss idea. I mean, literally, if he would apply himself for the next three to four years, he would be set financially for life. But this guy, he has four kids And uh, they're in sports and all kinds of activities. And he wants to coach their teams and be at every game and be at every dance recital. And so he's just not doing the things to follow through on his business plan. And I don't begrudge him that. I don't begrudge him, you know, exchanging time with his family for time with his business. It's just that everyone who wants to accomplish something big, they need to soberly look at the trade-offs before pulling the trigger. Rather than quitting later on because they just didn't have enough to make it happen. A trade-off is giving up something you want for something you want more. A sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. And that's dip number two. Dip number three, enlist your fellow travelers. This is kind of building off of what Sledge said last night. You're fooling yourself. If you think you can make major change in your life alone, Ecclesiastes 4 says, the one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What does that last phrase mean? Is that if you were to uh, uh, create an endeavor in which it has you working as hard as you can, a second uh, cord of other people who believe in you and have come around you, and the third cord of the Holy Spirit helping you, that's an unbeatable team. So as you're thinking about your fellow travelers for your goals, I'd recommend you collect three different types of people. The first person I would tell you to collect is an oracle. An oracle is a very wise person that you go to at key crossroads in your life. Uh, It's someone who uh, will ask you penetrating questions and they will proffer uh, godly wisdom based on their own experience. And an oracle is not necessarily someone who's a mentor. Like, you don't necessarily have to meet with this person at Mozart's for coffee every week. You don't need to take long walks on Ladybird Lake together or anything like that. You just need to go to someone who's a little bit older, more mature in your life and say, look, I respect your point of view. And from time to time, uh, I'm dealing with something and I need an outside perspective. Would you be willing to do that? Second group of people are subject matter experts. You got to add these people to your portfolio. These are people who have expertise that you, ex- you respect in particular areas that you might need on your journey. So, with subject matter experts, again, these aren't mentors. These are just people you tap into occasionally, and you say to them, "Look, I am amazed at what you know about health and nutrition, or you're the best person I know with social media marketing, or I really admire your prayer life, or you and your wife are the best parents I've, I've ever seen." So. Would it be willing, would you be willing if I ever have a question about that subject that I could come to you and just, I won't waste your time. I won't ask you things I could Google myself, but can I come to you occasionally to do that? You'd be surprised how many people will say yes. Then the third group of people you've got to add as a fellow traveler is the running partner. At Gateway, we talk about this all the time, so I won't spend much time on it, but you need a peer in your life for your goals. Someone you meet with probably regularly who's believing in you, Who's asking the hard questions, who's holding you accountable, and someone who's willing to say to you, you know, your BS does not smell that good. Do you have that person in your life? So you got to have a team. This is dip number three. Your fellow travelers. Who's on it? Who's your oracle? Who are your smart people? And who's the running partner running alongside you? Dip four, become a professional. 1 Corinthians 9 Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way, Paul says, as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says there's a tremendous amount of training and discipline that goes into the spiritual life. He says there's a big difference between just uh, hoping for crossing the finish line and winning a prize and actually early in the morning lacing on your sneakers, putting on your sweatsuit, and going out on the green belt and running. And so Paul says, I strike a blow to my body to make it my slave. <laughs> That's intense. I grew up uh, in the Church of Christ and we used the Revised Standard Version of the Bible and it translates that passage, I buffet my body daily. And I remember as a kid reading that loud and I read it out loud as I buffet my body regularly. <laughs> and as a chubby little fourth grader, I just thought that was the best passage. Um, but what Paul's saying is if you want something, if you need, to t- you need to take it seriously enough to practice it over and over again. A- as you look at your goals, you got to look at the gaps in your life. What are the skills that I need to fill in? Do I need to improve in public speaking or, or, or in sales? Or uh, do I need to get better at prayer? What, what are the books that I need to be reading? The resources I need to be tapping into? Because that's what professionals do. They do the little things every day to fill in the gaps. Tip number five, we're almost done. Quit when necessary. Many of you are going to totally disagree with me on this point. But here we go. Knowing when to let go of goals and hopes and move on is one of the most important life skills you could ever have. Quitting early is one of the most important life skills you can ever have. If I were to today pulled together some of the oldest and gr- most grizzled and smartest businessmen that I know and I was to put them in a room and hand them a tumbler of hennessy and a stogie and I say okay guys be real tell me what is the one thing that was your biggest regret in your business career almost all of them will tell me a story of something they wish they had quit sooner it'll be like a business that they poured years and money into when they kind of knew in the beginning that there really wasn't a market for this Or they'll tell me stories about an employee that they had who's divisive or not competent or a real jerk. And they just hung on to them for months and years without firing them, hoping that they could change them, hoping they could turn them around. They wish that they had quit sooner. A lot of guys in that room would talk about golf. You know, I got into golf because I thought I needed it in business. But the truth is, I suck at golf and I hate it. And I throw my pitching wedge in the water all the time. And I look back on all those Saturdays that I wasted on that. Okay, so these these are the type of life lessons that people who are successful know, and they know that you never ever ever quit something because it's hard or because you hit a rough patch but you always, always, always quit goals when it's clear after some serious effort on your part that it's not actually what you wanted or that it's not going to ever produce the results. Which brings me to the the sixth dip, which is endure the dip. Up here on the screen, you're going to see a a similar diagram uh, to the mastery curve. This is from Seth Godin's book, The Dip. And his book is not about Syrian generals with leprosy. This is a different kind of dip. So, Godin says in his book, anything worth it in life is going to have a dip. So, he's got rewards on this side and effort down here. He says, uh, anything in life that's worth it, you're going to experience a lot of frustration in which you're not getting results. There's going to be this trough in which you're just slogging it out. And all the important things in life have this, because if there wasn't a dip then all of us would be 100% successful at everything that we tried. Everyone would win. But everything in life that's worth it has a dip that you have to endure. Great marriages. You know. For some of us, that was our first couple years of marriage. Some, for some of us, it was after a, a family tragedy. Some of us, it's empty nest syndrome. That was, that was the dip of marriage. But the results on the other side... When we made it through, we're amazing. In business, I mean, there are times where you know you've got the right idea, you've got the right team, but the results just aren't happening. And it's a dip, and you've got to figure it out. Uh, in career, you go through dips, okay? The important thing is, on the other side, there are these tremendous rewards if you'll just endure and do the work every day. So back, uh, I know this is kind of at odds with my previous point, but my previous point was about the cliff, If you are on a cliff doing the same thing, getting the same results, heading towards a place where you're going to hurt yourself or hurt people that you love or hurt your customers, that's the thing that you quit. But you never quit the dip. You know you're in the dip because uh, even when it's hard, you still have a vision for the good stuff that's on the other side. You know you're in the dip if you still have some fight in you. You know you're in the dip if there are some things you still haven't tried yet. Always quit the cliff. Never quit the dip. That's dip six. And then finally, dip seven. Praise God for what the journey did to you. You're going to need to read the rest of 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman. It's some really bizarre things happen uh, after he becomes whole. It's kind of funny. But the most important thing to note here is that Naaman realizes in the end that God had him on this journey all the way from Syria into Samaria to Elisha's house in the woods, and then down to the river. God had him doing all that because God wanted to teach him that he wasn't God, that Naaman wasn't God, and that to be a man, he has to do the dips. And so there in verse 15, Naaman says, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. God's completely changed his heart. And Elisha notices it too. I mean, there in verse 9, Elisha's basically saying, 19, uh, Elisha's basically saying, wow, you're a different man now. And so it wasn't about the destination for you, Na'aman. It was the journey. And Elisha says, You can now go in peace. There's a lot more I like to say that about that, but I'm just going to leave it there. The last dip is realizing that God used a goal and you're striving for it in order to develop you as a man. And I don't want to say anything sexist here. I, don't, I mean, we can argue about what gender roles are. And I'm not saying that women don't have ambitions and go on to do amazing things and work with God and that. But part of the core, biblically, of being a man is that God asks you to make order out of chaos. God gives you a vision He asks you, what do you really want? He encourages you to dare boldly. God meets men when they strive to achieve something big. This is manhood. Men dream, but then they take action. They dare, and then they do the hard things. They make resolutions, and then they do the dips. So I uh, wish God's blessing on you as you go through the dips. And um, my email address is up there if I can uh, help you in any way or pray for you. Uh, But if you do end up emailing me, don't ask me any should questions. All right, bless you all. Can I pray for you? God, the hopes and the plans of these men uh, were put in their hearts by you. And they're incredible. You've called them into so many different uh, mission fields and opportunities and ways to impact this world and to change their own lives. God, I pray that you would inspire them that you're alongside to do the dips as they do the hard work. And God, I know you will enjoy the dance with them. Just give them perseverance as they move through it all and pursue the things that they really want.